Welcome back. This is Exhibit AI, a podcast exploring contemporary legal issues for tomorrow's technology, presented by the Center for Legal and Court Technology at William & Mary Law School. I'm your host, Lindsay Whitlow, the Center's Bustle Fellow and Assistant Director for Research. Today we're doing something just a little bit different. Um, we're going to be introducing a series of episodes all dedicated to legal issues surrounding smart cities. The goal of this episode is to sort of give an overview of you know, what exactly a smart city is, why it matters, how the law interacts with technology, companies, and the communities in which these ideas are implemented. Um, so before we begin, just a few disclaimers. First, our goal really is to talk about areas of law that are less obvious when one thinks of smart cities. So generally, we're going to try to steer clear of directly talking about issues of, say, privacy, cybersecurity, and liability. Um, naturally, those are going to pop up whenever they kind of fit into other areas of the law, um, but they may not necessarily be the focus. Um, and secondly, we don't want to pretend to be experts on all of the technology that goes into smart cities or even every single legal implication that um, may be had because of these technologies. Um, the goal is really to provide a starting point from which more discussion and discourse can be had, considering broader legal challenges as they intersect with technology. Um, and finally, just to kind of give an overview, we are going to be generally approaching this from the U.S. perspective as the U.S. is where we're located, and that's the, those are the laws that we're most, most familiar with. Um, but going forward, there's definitely room for discussion about global implications and sort of what that may mean on a larger scale. So now, just to go ahead and get started, I want to introduce our Smart Cities podcast lead team, Alex Pratt. Hi. Catherine Sorrell. Hello. And Ott Lindstrom. Hey, how's it going? Um, they've helped organize every single episode, and they have been doing the research and getting everything set up. And uh, CLCT is really super grateful for their dedication and time. So I just want to say welcome to everybody. So as we get started, I think it's really important for us to take a second and maybe give an overview of what these things are, right? Like, let's kind of start with just a few definitions. Um, you know, there's not a singular body coming up with these definitions. So the definitions we talk about here today are going to be sort of what we have put together based on a lot of the literature we've read and kind of the, um, I guess, the popular opinion of where we are right now. So whatever definitions they are, are not necessarily the definitions, they are a definition. Let's start with exactly what is a smart city. Catherine, would you mind just kind of giving us a basic overview? Sure. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, first of all, I would echo the, the caveat that you gave, Lindsay. Um, uh, by nature, smart cities are complex and um, multi-layered, uh, both in terms of the technology as well as their the implications uh, legally. So um, I would just uh, begin by saying that smart city as a term um, has evolved. It's uh, adapted with the changing technology. It's accumulated multiple definitions over time. Um, but we're going to uh, keep it simple. There's a general consensus that smart cities involve an integration of information technology systems um, with other critical systems in a city. So you might include those critical systems um, to mean education, healthcare, public safety, real estate, transportation, utilities, including your you know, sewage system or your trash uh, waste management systems, you know, large-scale systems that operate across cities. So this integration allows for uh, continual collection and sharing of data across the systems. 
So connection to smartphones and other personalized smart devices is critical here. And the feedback loop that gets created between the systems allows for a more um, immediate response to users' habits and activities. So uh, one thing you might imagine is, for example, a smart trash can uh, being able to respond to a person's habits. So if Say, for example, they don't put as much trash in the trash can on certain weeks. You know, the, the, the smart trash can might be able to better regulate when, you know, city goes and collects trash from those particular trash cans that are sit- sitting empty and don't need to be, um, you know, collected on that day. Um, so that's just an example. Uh, but what's really important with regard to these devices and smart technology is that, you know, we generally think of them operating in the cybersphere but they have an impact on the physical world and how we actually move and live within a city and within our own um, homes within a city. So another example is that you may have a front door lock can be managed from a smartphone application from anywhere. You know, you can be at work and you can lock your front door. But if the technology malfunctions, then your door is not going to lock or unlock. And um, so, you know, imagine forgetting your keys and now your, your unlock function isn't working on your app, um, you know, that can set up some problems just on an actual way that you navigate your, your daily life in the physical world around you. So we're starting to see, you know, this migration of uh, this technology to, to that level of, of our kind of um, daily existence in cities. So I've obviously given a very general overarching definition with a couple of um, kind of simple examples, but Ott, I want to go ahead and ask you to, even at, at this very moment at the beginning of our first episode, to go ahead and complicate the, the definition. Um, there's obviously a lot we're going to be talking about, but um, you know, definitionally, we, we already have some complicating factors here. Yeah, and I'm happy to make it complicated, Catherine. <laughs> so as you already touched on, there is this issue of definition when it comes to a smart city. There, it's kind of a, it's an empty signifier to put in kind of semiotic terms. There's no hard and fast definition of what smart is in the context of a, of a smart city. Now we have like these kind of spheres that we're talking about, but really when you get down to it, it's an issue of kind of gradation. How much smart technology, how much interconnectedness does there need to be for a city to be considered smart? For example, think of a bus system that implements a smart technology that helps with routing during high traffic hours, that helps um, inform citizens as to like the exact location of a bus and all that sort of stuff. But that's the only smart system that the city has implemented. Is that city smart or is it making use of a smart technology? And since interconnectedness is such a key feature of all these systems talking to each other, when there's when it's kind of one conversation happening by itself, is that really interconnectedness or is it just a buzzword? And then you kind of also have a another gradation, which is the degree of inclusion, which uh, I think the, the term that we've kind of thrown around is selectively smart. So if you have a city that has all these nifty smart services and stuff, but those services are only accessible by citizens that have certain pieces of technology like expensive smartphones etc you result in a divided society um basically the the people who have the technology that can you know access the city's smart systems live in a much different city than those who don't have the access to that technology 
Um, and that is an ongoing issue that I think is going to inform a lot of our conversations around this going forward. Yeah, that makes sense for sure. Because, you know, I think the question that comes after that, you're saying interconnectedness is sort of the epitome of smartness. So how how are things connected? You know, I think the term is the Internet of Things, um, but that's sort of an amorphous definition as well. You know, it's very, you know, um, put upon by society to figure out what that actually means. But maybe, Alex, you can give us just a basic definition um, of what the Internet of Things does and, and kind of or what it is, really. Yeah. Um, I think my favorite definition I found to describe the Internet of Things was that it describes the phenomenon of everything connected to everything. And I love it, but at the same time, you need a bit of background understanding to realize why that's such a great definition. So if we take a step back maybe like 25, 30 years ago, we were used to only having computers connected to the internet. Only computers could talk to each other via the web. But now we have all of these internet-connected devices out there in our lives. We have smart watches, uh, smart door locks, refrigerators, cameras, pet feeders, kids' toys. All these devices are now connected to the internet and are able to communicate with each other, uh, with their manufacturer. And at the same time, they're interacting with the environment around them. And that's why it's called the Internet of Things. The web is now not just information from computers, but from all these other things, all these other devices. One important difference now with IoT is the amount of data being collected and processed about each person who has these devices. When it was simply computers online, data just came from your use of that computer. But now there are all these devices that make up the part of our boring everyday lives that are collecting data on us, what we eat, our sleep habits, our daily schedule. It's collecting it and transmitting it along the internet to their manufacturers, to uh, third parties who buy that data from the manufacturers. And unfortunately, because it's transmitted online, it can be transmitted to hackers who are able to steal that data about our lives. And to reiterate one thing that Catherine brought up earlier, uh, an important difference now with IoT is when something goes wrong. When we were only worried about computers, uh, when that crashed, you simply lost the information that was on that computer. But now, IoT devices have impacts in the physical world. Just like Catherine mentioned, uh, you know, if your internet-connected door lock breaks or malfunctions, now the door to your actual home is unlocked to everyone else in the world. So... It sounds like there is just an enormous amount of like energy and power and connectivity that would be required to make the IoT run, at least in the way that we think that would be the most operational. So uh, why don't you tell me a little bit, like what, what powers the IoT? Yeah, so the kind of keystone to this whole emerging ecosystem is 5G. And 5G is stands for fifth generation. I know it's a very, a very clever abbreviation. Uh, the fifth generation is sort of cell phone data transmission technology. And why it's so important um, to the Internet of Things is that sort of the, the current mainstream cell phone technology you might be familiar with looking, when you sort of look, open up your iPhone and you see in the top left corner, it says like LTE or 4G or 3G or whatever. Those are the past and sort of current versions of, cell phone data connection technology. 
And the problem with the current sort of LTE standard is that it, it has some latency issues. It's relatively slow compared to 5G and much slower than like your standard internet cable connection and all that sort of stuff. And it has capacity problems. We're seeing this now in a lot of metropolitan areas where during sort of peak hours of the day when, you know, during the commute or whatever, when everyone's on their phones, you're seeing markets slow down. And 5G solves that issue. Uh, 5G is operates a, a different part of the broadband spectrum. It has a much shorter wavelength, and that makes it a much faster data transfer. Um, and I, this is... For all the techies out there listening to this, I'm not a an expert on this by any means. So if I am getting the exact parts of the science wrong, <laughs> I do apologize. Uh, but that's basically kind of why 5G um, works the way it does. And and the other th- the other important thing about it is, in addition to the speed, which is orders of magnitude higher than LTE, um, it also allows far more data connections to it. So going from hundreds of to thousands of connections to an LTE tower or an LTE um, access point, uh, 5G access points literally allow like over like millions of connections to it. And the other really important thing about 5G is in its reduction of latency over current cell phone data transfer standards. Now, latency is sort of as it, 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 it is what it is. It is sort of the time it takes between when you want to do something over a connection and that thing actually happening. And with LTE, it's for the kind of activities that we do on our day, in our day-to-day on a cell phone, like you know, browsing Twitter, or watching a video or something, it doesn't matter too much. But when we're talking about this Internet of Things world where you have all these systems communicating very important, highly technical information with each other every single second, like with autonomous vehicles, for example, or remote surgeries or something, latency can literally lead to lost lives. If you have a, like a difference of 40 milliseconds of response time in a crash scenario for an autonomous vehicle versus four milliseconds is a big difference um, at that scale. Okay, but all of these things sound pretty decent, like a good thing, right? We want to decrease the, how long it takes for you know things to respond um, as we need them um, and more people can use it but I've actually heard some you know not so great opinions on 5g so maybe you can tell me why we might be worried about it like why these people would not have um, sort of the same appreciation as the <laughs> you know, the instinct would be yeah so there are a number of both valid and perhaps less valid critiques of 5g. Um, the first and perhaps I would say the most major one um, goes back to that broadband spectrum issue. The fact that it is operating on a shorter wavelength than its sort of predecessors. Because it's operating on a shorter wavelength, 5G does not have as long of range as current mainstream LTE towers and also has a harder time penetrating buildings, penetrating physical obstacles. So as a result, you need to have a lot of infrastructure. You need to have a lot of access points for uh, 5G uh, spread around a city, spread around a locality, and that is expensive and also a power draw compared to current LTE standards. Then there are security issues. 5G uh, tech 
not going to get into specific companies or anything, but there are concerns over some of the major providers of the technology that makes it the backbone of the 5G system that perhaps might be um, beholden to a, a foreign power, might have other security issues and such that could put all these massive amounts of data that are going through 5G systems from the Internet of Things at risk of breach, of hacking, etc. by malicious parties. Um, and finally, there are sort of perceived health concerns around 5G. Now, there haven't been any studies showing that 5G presents health problems, but like with the rollout of any new technology, there are contingents of the public that are understandably perhaps suspicious of this new tech and perceive that it might have health concerns, health issues resulting from its use. Um, so for I think some European countries that have been rolling out 5G have experienced some issues around public mobilization against the rollout and demands for um, further health and safety testing before it gets implemented. And while, again, there is no actual scientific proof that it does cause health problems, it, that is still the, 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 the belief that it might presents a roadblock for its implementation. So I guess sort of speaking of roadblocks, right, um, I don't know that I've seen you know, these smart city IOT 5G technologies in front of my face. Um, and I don't know even kind of what circumstance I might see them in. So Alex, I, I feel like you, you may have some knowledge about this. Why don't you kind of walk us through maybe a couple of examples of where I might see these technologies most prevalently? Yeah, no problem. Um, I do have some good examples for you, but before I go into those, um, there is one thing I really, I feel like I need to talk about first. Uh, when we talk about smart city technology, we're not talking about the government inventing and then dispersing a technology all on its own. But what we're actually seeing in practice is more of a blend of public and private technologies working together. And a smart city does that by design. A, a smart city blurs the private-public divide because you have an individual device generating data, and the government then can use that data to optimize government resources and output. Now, you did ask for specific examples, and I have three for you. Um, Lindsay, have you heard of autonomous vehicles? I may or may not have gotten to kind of scope one out. Um, <laughs> so, yes, uh, I'm a huge fan of the idea of it. Awesome. Well, that's a private device. It's privately owned by a citizen. But it can be tracked by sensors installed on public roads. The government can then use that data generated by the sensors to control traffic flow or even monitor road conditions to better allocate money for road repair. Uh, video surveillance, that's my second example. We see private video surveillance all the time. Uh, lots of businesses have CCTV for security. Now, it used to be that these security cameras all recorded locally on tape. But starting in the 90s, we started to see internet-enabled cameras enter the market. Now, local cities see all those private cameras out there as a cheap alternative to buying lots of their own police CCTV cameras. What cities are doing right now is encouraging private businesses and citizens to put their cameras onto the city police network. A large, typical city could get up to hundreds of thousands of camera feeds in just a few years with this program. Police then use video analytics to make sense of all that video footage to identify and monitor crime. 
This technology, however, gets a little scary because there are proposals to use it for predictive policing. It's essentially fighting crime that hasn't happened yet. This can create uh, what are called communities within communities. It kind of becomes a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy as to where crime will be committed. They expect it to happen, so then they go out of their way to find it. But not all smart city technology is dystopian or scary. A lot of it, most of it is just simply benign. Um, what Catherine had mentioned, trash cans. Trash cans are a great example. New York City has been implementing smart trash cans uh, throughout the city. What these trash cans do is they monitor the level of trash in them, and then when they are full, they basically send out an alert for pickup. They are using, they, the government, are using the data that, hey, I'm full to optimize trash service and thus reduce the cost of going and picking up trash when it's not full. Optimizing utilities goes to the heart of what a smart city ideally can do. Take in data and use that data to allocate government money more efficiently. However, there's a counter argument to that, um, specifically with utilities. Um, so, for example, smart meters, your smart gas meters, they're sold as money-saving devices in your home, you know? But the question is, is efficiency that way always desirable? If the government can monitor your gas usage via a smart meter, then they can also immediately cancel and cut off your gas for non-payment, whereas now there is a delay you know, allowing for mistakes to happen, you know, maybe the check got in the mail late. Is implementing these new technology and that potential efficiency, is that really worth the potential human cost it brings? So just to kind of finish up, one thing I want to point out about all my examples is that they're all very visible examples. Like they're, they're very visible technologies in our lives. You can see smart trash cans. You know that the camera you have put up is on the police network because you allowed them to access your feed. You know, you know the autonomous vehicle is driving down the road with sensors, but not everything is going to be visible. And I think um, when we were talking previously, Catherine, you had a really good example of how invisible a smart city can become. Sure, yeah. I think one of the things that makes this complicated as a citizen is uh, – you may um, sort of decide to use all kinds of smart technology in your own home, your own business, for example, just like you uh, mentioned. But you may not be thinking about all the ways that smart technology is embedded in your environment. And, and it creates this sort of um, visible, invisible factor in the smart technology itself. So one example of uh, one way we're starting to see you know, some cities adopt smart technology is, um, again, back to the surveillance issue, uh, you know, sometimes when you're in public places, you expect to be under surveillance. Um, yeah, there are signs and when you go into CVS. Sure, yeah, and you might see a camera, um, but we're starting to see them in, you know, street lamps, for example, in certain cities where um, you, may, you may never expect or um, even think, oh, if I'm walking my dog on my neighborhood street, there's a, a video camera that's embedded in all of the street lights that can track my movements. Because you expect the street light to do one thing. 
sure. just to give out light. Absolutely. So I think that that multi-purpose aspect that you just pointed to, the sort of unexpected nature of some of the ways we're seeing this technology be implemented um, creates this sense that there that it's um, it's showing up in sort of ways that we may not expect, that aren't always visible to the naked eye, that aren't always even things that we would think to anticipate or know about, which doesn't mean necessarily that those cameras are going to present uh, uh, legal issues, but it's just as a citizen living in a city, it's a bit unexpected to find um, or, or to, to even encounter the technology in those ways. I mean, I certainly wouldn't have expected that to be a scenario um, on my neighborhood street. So Alex said there's not only dystopian uses, right, for this technology, but that's honestly a little bit scary. So, um, <laughs> you know, I guess what that brings us into then is why does this conversation matter, right? Why are we concerned about smart cities? Why are we bringing up the issues that sort of are outside of that sort of normal sphere that people would talk about, privacy, cybersecurity, things like that? I think, you know, there's there's untold legal issues, and maybe, Catherine, you can sort of pick up on that a little bit as well. Sure, yeah. I, I think that, uh, first of all, obviously, the nature of what we're talking about is is complex again. And because of that, um, it's hard to tease out all of the legal issues that might be involved. It's also hard to anticipate all of the legal issues because we are dealing with technology that is, um, you know, rapidly evolving and overnight it's changing. Uh, we don't even know necessarily what's going to come down the line in um, five to 10 years. So even if you look back and read some of the predictions about smart cities as of, you know, two to five years ago, it's sort of off the mark on what's actually happened. But I think that one thing I would highlight is, again, the obviously you have issues of consent, um, which doesn't just touch privacy concerns. Uh, it touches issues of how communities are being formed. Alex talked about the use of surveillance to do p- predictive policing. Um, that can affect uh, communities in very um, deep ways. It can um, reinforce uh, patterns of segregation in a city. It can reinforce bias and discrimination towards certain communities. We're also seeing uh, some uh, interesting issues in the way that the technology is designed and, and some bias that can come into the design process. So there's all sorts of um, a really complicated, uh, again, emerging issues that we're seeing here. And as lawyers, as judges, as a legal community, we're not all really fully equipped at this point to even know how to begin to kind of um, reckon with these issues. So, you know, we sort of mentioned that it's really hard for us to predict where this is going to go and and what kind of technology is coming forward. And I think that's really especially difficult in law because it's so reactionary. Mm -hmm. We can't react if it's not happened yet, but it's something that needs, you know, regulation. So I think maybe you can talk a little bit about, you know, where that sort of interacts and the problems that come up there. Yeah. I mean, to be blunt, the law simply cannot keep up with technology. (laughs) We have this issue. It, I, I like to call it sort of the issue of the speed divide and the communication divide, where the people who are inventing these new technologies are not the people regulating it, and the people who are regulating it are not the people who understand how it works, per se. So the speed at which you have companies out there developing this technology so far outpaces our ability to, through the through the United States democratic process, like wrap our minds around what's happening, 
debate legislation, get legislation out there, implement the legislation. By the time that's done, we're already like three iterations down the road and all sorts of new issues have come into play. So there's that speed divide. And then it just frankly, the vast majority of legislators out there, the people making these regulations stuff, they just don't understand how any of this stuff works. Like if you see sort of any a clip from C-SPAN of a congressional hearing focused on a tech issue. You, I, I find it kind of frightening how uninformed a lot of the people asking questions seem to be. So there's that communication divide. And, and this is, like, and it seems all well and good for the businesses to a certain extent. Like, oh yeah, we are completely unfettered. But the problem is that a lot of businesses want clarity on what is ultimately going to be okay. They don't want to be hit with a bunch of liability down the road because the thing they've developed today is going to be made super-duper illegal five years down the line when people finally wrap their minds around what's going on. It's so much cheaper to develop things without that threat of liability when you know what you're expected of. And, of course, we don't want to get to a point where we're regulating innovation completely away and like putting like a moratorium on the ability to advance technology or anything like that. But there is a middle ground between full speed ahead and not being able to do anything at all. And, like, everyone benefits from communication, knowledge around these uh, issues and topics. I don't really think I've ever heard of a business asking to be regulated in my life. So <laughs> that's that's a new one for me. Um, but, you know, it, it sort of makes sense, right? They, they want to make sure that they're not crossing lines that aren't even drawn yet. So, um, and, you know, sort of building off that, now that we've talked about the why and the what – now let's talk about the how. This is what we're going to sort of go through for the next several weeks and try to get into those issues that are not normal, you know, everyday topics that people have at, you know, at a cocktail party. Um, but it's sort of, I think, important for us to just give an outline of what we may want to touch on going forward because there are so many different legal issues that are implicated by this technology. Um, and I know, Alex, you, you've you been working pretty hard on a, an episode about constitutional law, so maybe you can walk us a little bit through what that's going to look like. Sure. Um, well, just to start off, if we were going to talk about all of the constitutional issues surrounding smart cities, it would take just hours and hours. So we've decided we're going to really narrow it down a bit for our episode. What we'll specifically be talking about is how smart cities may implicate the first, fourth, as well as 14th amendments. In terms of the Fourth Amendment, we'll be looking at whether smart cities will prompt a change in the third-party doctrine. Okay, um, what? <laughs> the third-party doctrine is the idea that if you freely give information to a third party, uh, often a business, uh, like when you give your name and address to the bank, then the government can get that information from the third party without a warrant. And you can't object because you have voluntarily given that information over. Now, there was a recent Supreme Court decision called Carpenter v. United States that was really touched on the third-party doctrine. Uh, specifically in that case, it concerned cell phone location data. And we're going to talk about whether following that decision, there will be further changes in the third-party doctrine given the vast amount of data a smart city will collect about its citizens. Now, for the 14th Amendment, we'll be discussing whether a smart city will implicate the Equal Protection Clause. Now, with a smart city, the government is going to be making decisions based off of data about its citizens. 
but we know that that data likely won't come from all citizens. Uh, for example, uh, while 90 to 95 percent of Americans have a cell phone, only 70 percent have a smartphone. So that leaves 30 percent who don't have a either a cell phone or a smartphone. And that 30% strongly correlates with lower economic status and in certain localities with racial minorities. So if a government is making decisions based off of data from smartphones, those decisions, well, we have to ask the question, does the fact that disadvantaged groups are not part of the data informing those decisions, does that implicate equal protection concerns? So we're going to be looking at that. I can't promise you answers. But we'll have a lot of discussion. I definitely think that's probably going to be a theme throughout these episodes that it's going to be really difficult for us to come up with a solution because no one else has either, right? But the point <laughs> is, you know, asking the right questions. And um, I guess perfect segue, though, from equal protection to the idea of you know civil and human rights. You're welcome. Mm, thank you. <laughs> um, Catherine, I know that that's sort of a... a place of passion for you, and that's what you've been really focusing on. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what our episode on civil rights is going to look like? Sure, yeah. So I think, um, obviously, there's a tremendous overlap with the constitutional issues, uh, but we'll kind of be looking, um, uh, zooming in and out a little bit, looking at this from a policy perspective, and some questions that might affect the way that this um, technology might be regulated, for example. So, of course, um, there are issues um, around race, um, socioeconomic status, age, even for those in the disabilities community, for example. And when I say issues um, for those groups, I mean um, kind of back to what Alex was talking about in terms of um, sort of the digital divide and um, who's able to both opt into using this technology. So uh, there may be barriers um, for people being able to have full inclusion in smart cities because they don't have access to the technology in some way. And uh, that can take many different forms, either through affordability, um, through uh, certain uh, communities um, being systematically uh, left out of um, you know, certain smart city systems, um, all kinds of things. Uh, there can also be implications for being able to then also opt out of using the technology. So um, you may find cases where there's, uh, you know, parts of a city where they're not only able to use the technology when they want to, but they're also able to um, turn it off when they don't want, you know, their data being um, gathered. They can simply um, turn off the app or they can um, choose to not enter a certain part of the city that's a public space where they know um, they're going to be interacting with the technology. Um, but for other communities, that may not be an option. They may be more limited in their mobility in the city. They may be more limited in terms of their uh, choices um, socioeconomically in terms of what uh, utilities or services that they can use within a city. So that certainly impacts a lot of the civil rights issues. There's two other aspects I would highlight. One is, I touched on this earlier in my comments, but there is continual and really a strong debate that's emerging around the design bias that can go into a lot of this technology. So uh, facial recognition has gotten a lot of attention around this where um, a lot of facial recognition technology that is um, part of this surveillance system designed um, with a um, white able-bodied male in mind. 
And so the success rates in terms of the facial recognition technology being able to successfully identify um, are much higher for um, white able-bodied men than for minority groups. Um, so there's uh, significant racial bias. There's even some gender bias that's been um, part of the design flaw. Um, so th- these are all things that can impact, again, discriminatory effects on certain groups in a city. Um, and then the final thing I would highlight, which we've talked throughout this episode about, is um, how is the technology applied or who is it used on? Um, so again, um, if, if the surveillance capacity of this technology is used much more on you know, some communities than others, um, then that can create an effect of, you know, uh, almost like a stop and frisk policy, for example, where predictive policing is used or or uh, focused on um, a community that's been more vulnerable to bias and discrimination, historically speaking. So um, in many ways, none of this is new. It's just um, a different amplification, maybe, or even um uh, layer of uh, technology onto issues that we already face as a society when it comes to civil rights. I think there's also something in that too that I would say that people who are in the technological, you know, industry are not necessarily as comfortable saying what this may look like in the city itself, right? They they see tech as a solution, whereas people who work within the municipality may not necessarily agree and or they have insight that the technologists may not. And I think that comes in a little bit into um, what Ott's going to talk about in the sort of public-private partnership sphere, how things work with contracts, antitrust, and competition. So maybe Ott, you can just give us an idea a little bit about what that episode is going to be about. Absolutely. So yeah, this is sort of a little further out in the future, but We're talking broadly here about the issues that arise when you have a public municipality that is then partnering with these private companies to provide the smart city services. So one of the sort of top of mind issues there is liability um, as who is liable when something goes wrong and a citizen is harmed or otherwise something bad happens in depending on like contract terms, you might have a lot of responsibilities shoved off onto either the company or the city or um, whatnot. And that can, depending on how things shake out, lead to situations where functionally someone can't get redress for something very bad that has happened to them as a result of the implementation of smart city technology. Um, And then beyond that, you have kind of, you have issues of choice, shall we say. You have issues of when you have city A that has chosen to implement company-wise technology across the board. And then you have city sister city B down the road that has chosen to implement company Z's uh, technology as their smart city infrastructure. When companies Y and Z are bitter enemies, are these cities going to even be able to like interface with each other? Are we going to have like these very inc- interconnected enclaves that then can't actually communicate with the al- outside world? Are we going to have this kind of balkanization effect um, where depending on which company a city has chosen to go with to furnish its smart city technology, it's c- unable to share necessary information with other cities and its localities and stuff like that. Uh, within like the enclave of a single city, you have this kind of quasi-monopoly cartelization problem. So you, you we already see this issue in the context of utilities in some areas, d- depending on geography, depending on sort of 
the status of a market in place. You might only have one way to get internet. You might only have, usually you only have one way to get water, one way to get electricity. Well, what then happens when that exclusivity becomes a writ large problem where the provider of smart city technologies, the provider of all these key public services that a city goes with is now the only game in town for accessing things like transportation, accessing all manner of like key things that you need to engage with in your day-to-day life. And let's say that your city has decided to go with a company that has let's say, subpar data privacy practices, subpar cybersecurity practices, but you have no choice but to engage with this system and allow it to collect your data and stuff so you can engage with what you need to do in your day-to-day. That's another serious problem that kind of arises out of this public-private partnership issue. Definitely, and I wish I could remember where I was reading this, but, you know, there's a, a case where, you know, people are saying, well, if you don't want to be a part of this, then you no one's making you, right? But you shouldn't also have to opt out of societal expectations, right? If yeah. the place you've grown up becomes a smart city, you shouldn't have to move just because you don't want, yeah. you know, the utility company to have your information. And, and for some people, like, it, it may even be impossible to opt out. And, like, if mm-hmm. you don't have the means to move out of a city, if you are, you know, locked into a situation, it it's there's no choice here. You have to go along or... Like, I'm not going to say the alternative because that gets very dark very quickly, but it's just a really bad situation all around. Right. And I think that sort of helps us get a broad overview of just a few of the things that we can possibly talk about. There are really endless topics of discussion here. And I think, you know, we have some other ideas in the works. Um, But just, you know, as a a brief overview of what we've been talking about, this is a good starting place for us moving forward and anybody who's trying to follow along with this podcast series to get an idea of what it is that we think are some of the major legal implications that have been less discussed. And what's really interesting here is that a lot of these areas overlap, but they become unique with a particular set of troubles that may require some sort of specialized knowledge. And that's that's really what we're going off here, you know, hoping to discuss these issues and give some insight into what questions have been asked and which ones still need to be asked. Um, You know, we we mentioned that there's most likely not going to be answers for these problems, but asking the questions is always a good place to start. So. On that note, I just wanted to say thank you to Alex, Catherine, and Ott for being here and sharing your initial thoughts with us. Um, we definitely look forward to delving into these issues with you in the coming weeks. Yeah, yeah, no problem. I also wanted to say a huge thank you to everyone listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, Exhibit AI, to hear more about the intersection of law and emerging technologies. For more from CLCT, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and our website, all linked in the description of this episode. Um, And last but not least, this podcast is made possible by grant funding provided by the Silicon Valley Community Foundation, funded by Cisco Systems, Inc. We appreciate their continued support for our independent research efforts. Thanks again for listening, everyone. Until next time, this is Exhibit AI signing off.